You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode 89. I'm your host, Dr. Cameron Marshall. Uh, For this week's episode, we're going to continue on with some of the questions that we got last week that we were unable to get to. Um, So if you do have questions that have not yet been answered and you want to get them answered, send them in to info at completeconcussions.com and we put them on a list and eventually uh, we will get to all of them. Uh, These are still the ones that came in from last week that we were not able to get to. So um, I have one, two, three, four, five additional questions. Some of them are along the same lines, so um, kind of handling some of the same topics. So anyway, thank you for joining us here today. The first question is, I'm stuck in fight or flight mode. What can I do? So fight or flight is a term that's typically used for uh, the sympathetic nervous system. So your autonomic nervous system uh, has two separate arms to it. One is the parasympathetic, which is also termed the rest and digest, which is kind of your chill mode state. And then the other one is the sympathetic nervous system, which is also termed the fight or flight, which this is your anxiety, your stress response, your pupils dilate, there's a bear chasing you, your heart rate gets faster, uh, blood starts to pump and you become uh, ready to go fired up. Um, Your adrenaline starts pumping. So that is fight or flight mode. Now after concussion, Well, let's talk about healthy state. Healthy state, you're in balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic. Your sympathetic nervous system kicks up when it's needed, shuts down when it's not. When you're kind of hanging out doing nothing, your parasympathetic system kicks up. Now, your parasympathetic system, it's termed rest and digest, so it's needed for things like sleep, but also the digestion of food. Now, after concussion, what happens is you get this this mismatch where you get a high sympathetic drive. So people will typically have a high uh, resting heart rate. Uh, They will typically be intolerant to exercise because they don't really have a second gear. Their heart rate's already high when they try to kick up and do any type of activity. It spikes higher than what it normally would and so they're, they're intolerant to exercise. But also they end up with like GI symptoms, they have difficulty sleeping, they wake frequently throughout the night. All of this stuff is is an imbalance uh, of the sympathetic parasympathetic system. So this individual right here is saying that he's stuck in fight or flight mode. What can he do? How can we increase parasympathetic and reduce our sympathetic? And these are kind of on a teeter-totter if you want to think about it that way. So if your sympathetic is up, it's kind of automatic that your parasympathetic is down. Um, So what you want to do to try and offset this balance is think about things that can uh, stimulate the parasympathetic system to try and increase its um, range on the teeter-totter. So Some of the stuff that we use are um, things that are kind of known as like vagus nerve type of stimulation. So your vagus nerve is a nerve that controls a whole bunch of systems throughout your body, but very much on the parasympathetic side of things. So things to activate this uh, nerve are diaphragmatic breathing. So breathing through your belly. A lot of times people that are in sympathetic mode, they're breathing with their chest. Um, And so you wanna focus on things like breathing through your nose, 
and breathing in through your belly. So if you just sit there for you know five minutes or so and really focus on every breath being through the nose, in and out, and breathing through the belly. You can also do a thing called box breathing where you take a, you take a breath in, again, through your nose, into your belly. Uh, you take three, three to five seconds on an inhalation, then three to five seconds on a hold, three to five seconds on an exhalation, three to five seconds on a hold, three to five on an inhalation, and you kind of think about it like you're making a box with your breathing. That is a way to elevate your parasympathetic nervous system. Meditation and mindfulness, right? When you're, ang when you're anxious and going and your sympathetic system is going, your mind is racing a million miles an hour and you can't shut it off. Mindfulness-based meditation allows you to think and focus on the present moment. So you're thinking about sensations that are within your body. You're focusing on your breathing. You're focusing on sounds that you can hear right now. You're trying to stay in the here and now. Your anxiety and your stress response is usually way ahead of you or way behind you, but you need to focus on the here and now, and that'll help to increase the parasympathetic activity. Regular exercise is another one of these. So getting out, even just going out for a walk can increase, and especially if you're in nature, uh, can increase your parasympathetic activity and good quality sleep. And this is a theme that comes up for a lot of this stuff, right? Diet, exercise, sleep, meditation, mindfulness, diaphragmatic breathing, all of this stuff is are things that can help with a variety of issues uh, when it comes to concussion or just life in general. Um, so that's another thing to think about. Good quality sleep, just coming back around to that right now. Generally, people do not have good quality sleep. A lot of patients I talk to will say, yeah, I get my eight hours or, you know, I'm in bed by, you know, 11, I'm up by, you know, eight or whatever. I get my, I get my eight hours, I'm fine. And, but what you don't realize is that the quality of that sleep matters. Now, I got this thing called an aura ring. Um, if I'm sure some of you have heard of it, some of you may have not, but the aura ring is essentially something that tracks your sleep. So it goes on, there's little sensors inside the ring. It connects to an app on your smartphone, but it measures the different cycles of sleep that you're in. It measures your activity throughout the day. It measures when you're sleeping. It measures your body temperature, your heart rate, your breathing rate, all of these things. It measures your heart rate variability, which is your sympathetic, parasympathetic activity and balance. And when I first started wearing this ring, I, I've, I've always had, you know, what I thought to be good sleep. So I was getting the right amount of sleep in terms of time. But what I always realized was that I wasn't getting my deep sleep. Every morning I wake up, my sleep, my sleep quality would all be good except for my deep sleep. It would always be in the red. I was never able to get the deep sleep. And the deep sleep is what reduces your inflammation and resets you for the next day. And so you're waking up kind of, you know, oh, I slept, but I'm, you're always kind of tired. And I could never get my deep sleep good. And then um, I'm actually taking this sleep course right now by Dr. Mark Hyman. So if you want to Google drmarkhyman.com and, and look up sleep, he's got a free sleep course right now that I've been recommending to a number of my patients to take because it just talks about things you can do throughout the day, right? Sleep actually starts in the morning as soon as you wake up. So exposing yourself to light first thing in the morning helps your body to reset your circadian rhythms. I actually have a blue light right here in front of me that I in the morning I go outside now first thing in the morning which help has helped me now. Now my deep sleep is no longer in the red. Also things like eating your biggest meals 
earlier in the day and eating smaller portions for dinner because when you sleep your body is trying to metabolize and clear out all the waste products and stuff but if it's there trying to digest food it can't do that and that prevents you from getting into that deep sleep so some of these changes that I made have allowed me now to get into that deep sleep and the and the results and how you feel are just remarkable and how much better you feel so try to look at things that can get you good quality sleep I would recommend the Mark Hyman sleep course for sure. It's a free thing that's going on right now. Um, and they have a lot of people on there talking about it. It's really good. Okay, so that handles that. Fight or flight mode, try to increase your parasympathetic activity through those various ways. Next question is, when exercising, some people don't get symptoms during exercise, but they get symptoms afterwards or the next day. Why is this? And I know that a lot of you guys that are listening to that to this right now are probably going to say that same thing or have that same experience, right? You feel fine when you're exercising, but it's the next day or it's later on that day. Well, we don't really know why that might be, but technically that is not considered a fail if you look at most exertional tests. We look at people to have symptoms during the exercise. And actually, what's more consistent with a failure or a, or a physiologic PCS, which is due to blood flow or, or um, um, autonomic dysregulation, um, is typically symptoms during exercise, during exercise, not afterwards, not the next day or anything like that. This could be due to a variety of reasons such as deconditioning or other things, but it's technically not a fail unless you get symptoms during or right afterwards. But with my patients, what I will typically do is if I do the treadmill test on them, let's say on a, on a Monday, and they're fine during the test and they're able to pass, and then the following day they, they email me and they say, hey, I woke up this morning and I'm, I'm having an increase in symptoms. Do you think it could be due to the treadmill test? Yeah, it's possible. It could just be that you've, you're just having a bad day because that happens from time to time as well. But what I will do is say, let's just to be safe, even though technically you are safe, you're able to exercise to full exertion with no increase in symptoms, that's fine. But what I'll do to just help make them feel comfortable in exercising, because a lot of times if a patient becomes symptomatic after exercise, they'll become fear avoidant. Well, I don't want to do that again because that, that increases my symptoms and I, I don't want to do that because they feel that it's making them worse. Well, it's not making you worse. It might temporarily make you symptomatic, but the more you do it, uh, the less that will happen, the better you will become, especially if it's something like deconditioning, right? The better shape you get into, the less of an effect it will start to have on your body. and You can actually start to ramp up your workload. But just to prevent a fear avoidant behavior in the patient from pulling back and becoming non-compliant, typically what I will do is I'll take a look at whatever their maximum heart rate achieved was. So let's say they got up to 180 beats per minute before they had before they were like, okay, I'm done, I'm, I'm tapped out. No increase in symptoms, but they got to 180 beats per minute. I'll actually just treat that as a fail and take 80% of that and say, okay, well, let's not work you out at 180. Let's have you work out at you know 150 or whatever 80% of 180 is. Um, and then I'll have them work out at that rate rather than push themselves beyond that. So I will treat it like a fail, even though technically it's, it's not. Um, and we're actually teaching this exact strategy. Uh, you guys heard last week when I talked about the patient course that we are putting out, we actually give this exact strategy for how you can start working within your own range to find out what works for you and what doesn't. So if you do have a spike in symptoms, don't worry too much about it. If it happens the next day, just lower your heart rate slightly for the next day. But the big thing comes down to tracking. 
So get a heart rate monitor and actually track your heart rate and that way you'll be able to um, actually have some data around this to know what level to work at. Don't just go willy-nilly. Okay, next question. Any treatment for ringing in the ears? So this is a common one. A common uh, question that we get a lot is, is tinnitus or ringing in the ears. Um, the biggest thing that I focus on right away is trying to figure out why that you why you have ringing, right? So I'll typically send somebody that has tinnitus. I'll send them to uh, an audiologist or ENT, ear, nose, throat doctor, to try and find out if there's something else going on or some cause for it. If it ends up being benign or there's no specific cause to it, like I want to rule out things like Meniere's disease and other other pathologies. But if it comes back that there's really no specific cause, there's a few things that can cause ringing in the ears that um, are, I don't want to say treatable because there's not really a lot of evidence to support it, but anecdotally with some of my patients, we have been able to relieve the ringing in their ears with certain techniques. So the eustachian tube opens up from your throat into the inner part of your ear. And if there's a buildup of pressure in there, that can cause ringing in the ears. It can also feel like a fullness in the ears. And oftentimes if we do work on the neck where that tube connects through, because it connects through the soft tissues and stuff of your neck, if your neck is super tight, which it often is after concussion injury, that can collapse that and prevent you know proper drainage and things and so there's things you can do working around there that might have an effect on ringing in the ears if that doesn't work then there's really not a lot of treatment options for it unfortunately so i would say if you do have it first find out the cause rule out any of the bad stuff that could possibly be going on see an ent talk to your doctor about any type of referral um, and um, if there's nothing there, then maybe see a chiropractor, physio, osteopath, somebody that can either work on draining that eustachian tube. So there's a technique called the Muncie technique where you put your finger in and you actually open up, you put pressure on the opening of the eustachian tube to allow for, for, for drainage or even just working on the soft tissues or even some adjustments of the upper neck sometimes can just open that up. And I've had patients where it's worked and I have other patients where it doesn't work. And unfortunately, if it doesn't work, um, I'm pretty much at a loss for that issue. So first find out the cause. Next question. Are eye exercises only effective within the short period of time after you obtain a concussion or should they be continued months after the injury? Well, it depends on the issue. If, and it also depends on what you're doing. If you've been doing exercises since day one and you're still doing the same ones and you're not having any benefit, then either you're not doing the right exercises for the problem that you have, right? Somebody's just giving you basic exercises to do without really looking at what you're doing or why you're doing it. And I find a lot of professionals do that. If they don't understand what they're doing, they'll just kind of throw it at you and say, okay, just do these and do that. And here's a Brock string and here's some smooth pursuits. I don't know why, just do it. If there's no actual rationale for why you're doing those exercises, then they're likely not to be effective at any time point after injury, either acutely or uh, into the future. If you do have the right exercises and you are given them early, generally people do better, right? The earlier you start rehab, the better your outcomes are going to be. That's just kind of how this goes. 
If you wait for months and months and months and start that late, then it's likely to take longer for those exercises to work because things have happened and solidified in there, right? You have this thing called neuroplasticity. If you start attacking it and targeting it early in the right in the right time frame, you can actually affect change fairly quickly. But if you wait and wait and wait, you have these problems that actually become neuroplastic themselves and these problems become ingrained, which makes it then harder and harder to um, get rid of them. So the question is, are eye exercises only effective in the short period of time after you obtain a concussion or should they be continued months after injury, I think that if you start them early and you're still going months after injury and you're still having issues, then you need to see somebody else or you have the wrong exercises. If you haven't been doing exercises, then yes, they can be effective starting them later after, but it will take longer for them to work. So that's the answer. Uh, finally, the last question. And if anyone has any other questions, uh, go for it. I have a few minutes I can spare. Um, what are some of the best ways to combat daily body fatigue 16 months post-injury? So daily body fatigue um, is likely to be uh, a deconditioning type of event as well. You have patients following concussion that will you know, react or respond by you know, lying in bed or bed rest is often prescribed for patients with concussion for um, a yet unknown reason. Um, unfortunately, this is still happening. So dark rooms, lying in bed, doing nothing, not socializing, not exercising, not playing sports, da, 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 da. Your body becomes physically deconditioned to the point where even mild stressors like going up a flight of stairs or cleaning the bathroom, ultimately then you're just like, oh my God, I'm so drained from that minimal activity. Some of you are probably even finding this on the lockdown from the pandemic. I haven't been able to go to the gym because of the lockdown and like I'm finding that I'm becoming deconditioned as well. Right, I've been trying to do body weight stuff like push-ups and, and squats and stuff, but I don't really have any access to weights. But you start to realize that you're becoming, you know, deconditioned gradually as time goes, right? And this has only been a couple months. So for those of you that are out there, 16 months after injury, if you haven't been regularly exercising and keeping up with that, you're likely super, super, super deconditioned. So anything you do is going to cause this you know, fatigue response. But I will give you four things. First, get your blood work checked. Now, there can be things like hormone imbalances. You could have a thyroid issue. Oftentimes after concussion, people will end up with these um, pituitary hormone dysregulations. And so thyroid is one of those. Thyroid is your energy. It's your, it's your whole met metabolic rate. If you have a thyroid issue, then that can be picked up in your blood. And there's treatment for that, right? So that can have extreme fatigue with it. Uh, adrenals, right? Your adrenal glands as well, which is your sympathetic nervous system, but those can become dysregulated as well and cause all sorts of fatigue. Um, and anemia. So have your irons level checked, your ferritin levels checked, those types of things. Get a good blood work done to make sure that there isn't something that's going on from a systemic standpoint. Also, then start taking a look at your diet, right? We eat a lot of refined carbohydrates in the North American diet and oftentimes what that does is spike your sugar levels and cause these collapses which increase your level of fatigue. So try to eat whole foods, good quality meat, don't eat anything that comes in a box, nothing that's refined um, and try to be higher on the fat 
and lower on the carbohydrates and the sugars, right? Bread is essentially sugar. Uh, pastas are essentially sugar. Um, people don't look at it the same way, but that's essentially what it is. When you're eating a piece of bread, you're essentially eating a you know flat piece of, of sugar. So think about it that way. Try to increase your fat intake. Try to eat more healthy. Avoid, um, you know, antibiotic hormone, all that type of stuff that can be in our food. Try to eat organic as much as possible, um, but really get the blood work checked and then just eat clean as you can and that will um, help. Number two on that one, best ways to combat daily fatigue, uh, sleep. I already talked about earlier in this episode, good quality sleep. So trying to get light exposure early in the day, avoiding blue light exposure at night because blue light suppresses melatonin and wakes you up, which is why it's good in the morning, but bad in the evening. If you're on screens, um, if you're, uh, all your lights are on in your house, that will suppress your melatonin. Melatonin is what helps you to fall and stay asleep, and it's secreted in pure darkness. So you want to have a lot of light exposure during the day, get outside during the day to get that light stimulation in the eyes, and then at night try to really reduce the amount of light and avoid screens altogether in the evening. That will help. Um, and also eating larger portion meals in the day, smaller portions at night, and avoiding sugars and carbohydrates at night. And I've noticed that to be a big thing for myself. If I eat you know, a piece of dessert after my dinner, then my sleep, my deep sleep is, is, is like 8%, which it should be up like higher than 20. Um, and if I don't do that, and if I just eat like you know, steak and some veggies, no carbohydrates whatsoever, my deep sleep is like 23%, which is, which is really good. So that's where you kind of want to want to stay. Uh, exercise, exercise every day, especially if this, your body fatigue is due to deconditioning. You want to be exercising every day to build up your tolerance, right? It will cause fatigue while you exercise, but guess what? That's kind of what you have to do. You have to start pushing that boundary and eventually that line gets further and further away and day-to-day -day tasks don't cause fatigue anymore. It's just getting yourself back into shape and you have to be consistent. You can't work out once and think that that's enough. You have to do this every single day and you have to push a little bit beyond what your levels are. And finally on this list is anxiety and stress. Anxiety and stress can be so draining. I don't know if any of you out there have ever had a panic attack, but if you've ever had a panic attack, you're just like, you're just dead afterwards, right? Your body goes crazy. Your mind goes crazy. It's just releasing all sorts of stress compounds and it just wipes you out completely. So if your mind is constantly racing and you're constantly under a lot of stress and anxiety, that is going to cause a lot of fatigue. So Try to do things that can reduce that fatigue. The things we've already talked about in this episode, told you there'd be a bit of repetition here, but all the things above, right? Proper diet, proper sleep, meditation, exercise, um, deep breathing exercises, all of these things can actually help to reduce your stress and anxiety. Talk therapy. Um, and if you really, really need it, which I don't recommend being the first go-to, but you know, potentially some medication for a short course of time, but that would be how you would eliminate body fatigue. Okay. I saw a question come in. What's your opinion on stimulants for concussion treatment? My neurologist recommended based on research. There really isn't a lot of research on any type of pharmacological intervention, medications and things like that for concussion. A lot of times physicians will prescribe medications because it's really all they can do. You're there for a problem. Here, 
take this stimulant that will potentially wake you up. There's ways you can do this naturally. It just depends on your school of thought. Um, a lot of the, there's really not a ton of research to support it. Um, but theoretically, I mean, it makes sense, right? You're, you're tired and fatigued. Let's give you a stimulant to boost you up. But you've got to think about all the side effects that go with it. Pay attention to the side effect profile because oftentimes that comes with, you know, agitation, inability to sleep and da 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 da. You start going down this other path now. Now you have all these problems that are related to the side effects of the medication that you're taking for a specific reason. There's ways that you can do this naturally, okay? Like proper diet, proper exercise, sleep. There's a whole new breed of medical doctor that's out there called functional medicine. And these, these are also naturopathic doctors and even chiropractors are getting into the functional medicine space, but it's essentially treating the body with, you know, food, diet, natural means, right? Things like educating you on proper sleep, um, looking at your hormone levels, looking for things like parasites and, you know, all these different things that a lot of Western medicine just completely, completely avoids and goes right to the, to the prescription pad. So I would, if it was me personally, I, I'd look around, I'd try to find um, more natural ways of doing things. Um, and that's just, that's just my own bias, but. Uh, light sensitivity. Were you, did you wear sunglasses a lot and did you avoid light a lot? So here's the question. What is your opinion on correcting light sensitivity? I'm 15 months out and it is still a big problem. The Usually what I find people with light sensitivity is those are the people that were very avoidant of light in the early stages, right? They they were in the dark rooms. They, have, they wear sunglasses indoors all the time. They don't go outside, you know, without having a lot of darkness on their eyes and things like that. And ultimately what that does is... Um, make them more sensitive to to light really the only treatment oh so no so you didn't avoid light do you wear sunglasses on the regular do you avoid light like how are you dealing with it right now that might be a better way to go here Yeah, see, even in the first even in the first couple of weeks. Yeah, so studies have been done on this looking at light sensitivity find that people that were told to avoid light sensitivity or avoid light to sit in darkness, to wear sunglasses, to do all that in the first couple of weeks after injury tend to have prolonged light sensitivity even a year after the injury. And I'm not sure why it happens a year out, but generally those that avoid light stimulation end up with chronic light sensitivity. Um, the only real treatment and what we try to get our patients to do is just exposure. Try not to be in darkness. Try not to baby yourself in like um, wearing sunglasses, you know, all the time, things like that. You have to start getting used to uh, normal lighting in a graduated fashion. So just try exposing yourself um, more and more and more each day to the point where it's no longer, you know, sensitive. The other thing is the longer this drags on, people forget what it's like uh, in terms of like normal sensitivities. I mean, I'll ask a patient sitting in my office, are, are you light sensitive? And the first thing they do is stare directly at the overhead UV lighting in our office. They'll just go, 
yeah, yeah, I am. I am sensitive. That hurts my eyes. Well, you just stared at the light. If I were to look at a light like that bright, I would be partially blinded for a few minutes afterwards. But the person with the concussion doesn't remember that and thinks that that's just them or that's somehow unique. Um, um, but it's not. So just try to continuously expose yourself. Um, yeah, don't get rid of your night filter on your phone. You got to keep the night filter on the phone because that's blue light, especially at night. So she says she's trying to expose the light, stop using the night filter on the phone. Keep the night filter on the phone after a certain period of time, right? So it's it's if you have it set to go off at certain times, you want to have it on at night because that's blue light exposure or altogether put, put your phone away. Um, but it's just regular exposure to light. Get outside, don't wear sunglasses, you know, just walk around a little bit outside. I've actually stopped wearing sunglasses for my sleep so that when I'm outside, I'm actually getting that good light exposure. Um, and then that way at night I can sleep better. So it's not necessarily just on your phone. Just try to be in normal light as much as possible. Eye twitching. I've had eye twitching since my concussion seven years ago, went away recently from treatments from my chiropractor. Do you think there is a link between the two? No. I think that really the like a lot of eye twitching is um, is related to problems sleeping, fatigue, um, stress, a lot of that stuff. So if getting treatments from your chiropractor starting to feel better starts to make your stress levels go down, if you start sleeping better at night, you're getting better rested, then the eye twitching is going to go away because of those reasons. But it's not the treatments from the chiro that are doing anything with that. It's probably just um, helping you in other ways, which is therefore reducing the, um, the twitching. All right. That is it for this week. If you do have questions, send them in. We're running low on our question bank and we will, uh, look forward to answering them, uh, next week or the week after. Cheers guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the complete concussion management podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.